we say a lot of things about how important prayer is to us, but a lot of us really are convicted about how little we pray. Tonight we're going to look at a parable of Jesus where Jesus teaches us about stubborn praying. And in this passage of Scripture, he's going to show us that prayer is just faith that doesn't know when to quit. Prayer is faith that does not know when to quit. So take your Bible and look with me in Luke chapter 18 tonight. And we'll begin in verse number 1. Luke chapter 18 and verse number 1. Excuse me. Luke 18, 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart, not to be discouraged or not to faint. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Prayer is faith that does not know when to quit. In Luke chapter 18, you have two of the greatest, most insightful parables that Jesus ever gave about prayer. You have this parable, the parable of the unjust judge. And then, which we'll look at, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks, you have the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. These are two of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. I think two of the most important stories in all of the Bible. But the Bible is laid out on purpose. I hope you know that. I hope you know that the Bible was not written by committee. The Bible was inspired by God. And so there is a reason and there is an order in the way that stories and details are given to us. And Luke chapter 18 comes, obviously, right after Luke chapter 17. And in Luke chapter 17, in verse number 20, a Pharisee comes to Jesus and he asks him a question about the kingdom of God. Look at Luke 17, 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and he said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. So the thought process is, Jesus, you're preaching that the kingdom of God is coming. You're going to come and establish this new kingdom of heaven. Where is it? What's taking so long? What's the hold up? Jesus says, you know, first of all, you totally misunderstand the nature of the kingdom itself. And he tells them that the kingdom of God is something that resides inside of his people. That the kingdom of God really is the place where God reigns. And he reigns inside of his people now. And he reigns through his people in the world now. But even though the king has come and the kingdom has come with the king, there are elements to the kingdom of God that have not gotten here yet. And Jesus begins to talk about that, uh, beginning in verse number 22. And he says uh, to the Pharisees, and he says to the crowd and to his disciples, he says there are going to be a lot of people that are going to miss the full coming of the kingdom 
Because they're going to be living the same kind of life that people were living when God flooded the world in the days of Noah. Those people were busy. They were marrying and giving in marriage, which those are good things. They were eating and drinking. Those are just normal things of life. But there are people that are so busy with life that they're going to miss God. Then he says to this, he says, remember Lot's wife? One of the shortest statements Jesus ever made. Remember Lot's wife? Remember how, remember how she was so concerned with the life she had in Sodom that she turned back and God turned her into a, into a block of salt? He said, don't let that happen to you. And as Jesus instructs his disciples about how to live faithfully and in trust and obedience, like we're just saying about, in the meantime, as they wait on the fullness of the coming of the kingdom, he gives them these two parables about prayer. He wants his disciples to live in faith, looking and anticipating the full coming of his kingdom. And then he teaches them a parable about how men ought to pray without giving up and without quitting while they wait on his promised return. So he gives them a parable about stubborn praying, saying that prayer is just faith that doesn't know when to quit. And that's the point of the parable. That's where we'll start. Let's talk about the point here. It's in verse number 1. And the Bible does us an incredible favor here. Luke, the gospel writer, does us an incredible favor because he tells us the point of the parable before he tells us the parable. He tells us what the story is about before he tells us the story. There's no mystery here. There's no secret here. This parable is given by Jesus so that people would know to pray and not to quit. This parable is given so that people would be persistent in their praying. And I just want to encourage you tonight. This is the kind of prayer life that Jesus wants you to have. He wants you to pray faithfully. He wants you to pray doggedly. He wants you to pray with tenacity. He wants you to pray with a certain amount of faithful stubbornness. And he wants you to pray without ceasing and to pray without quitting. Jesus wants you to be fearless when you pray. He wants you to be bold when you pray. He wants you to be confident when you pray. And maybe one of the best exercises that you could start engaging in tonight is for you to start praying for Jesus to give you the kind of prayer life he wants you to have. What kind of prayer life does Jesus want you to have? Well, he wants you to pray and not to lose heart. That's the point here. But if we're going to be honest, we know we need to pray more, don't we? It's not as if there's a quota to this thing called prayer. But none of us would ever dare say, you know, I prayed enough this week. All of us could look back over our lives. We could say, you know, I really do need to pray more. I've talked to so many people. In fact, I talked to somebody just this week who, who told me, they said, you know, prayer's always been the weakness of my own walk with God. I think most of us feel that way, don't we? I talked to so many pastors who would admit that they struggle to pray well, to feel like they've prayed well. And y'all, I have to admit, that's me. That's my testimony. Prayer does not come easily to me. It does not come naturally to me. It's difficult and it's foreign and sometimes it's awkward and sometimes I struggle to pray with this kind of stubborn persistence that Jesus is going to talk about in this parable. And just to be honest with you, I'm not preaching through Jesus' teaching on prayer on Sunday night to help y'all as much as I am to help me. I mean, I love y'all. I hope y'all kind of get some of it, but I'm just doing this for totally selfish reasons. So let's run this rabbit. Why don't we pray the way we should? Why don't we pray the way we should? I don't know if there's a one-size-fits-all answer, but I think there are answers. 
And I think I'm going to give you the answer as we finish up in a little while. But we believe that prayer works. We believe that prayer changes things. Could I submit to you that that might be part of the problem? Here's what I mean. If we think that prayer is just a tool, it's just a means to an end, just a way to accomplish things that we won't accomplish, that may cause us to pray or it may cause us not to pray. Because let's, let's just face it, we can get a lot done in our world without praying. You can grow a church today without praying. You can treat cancer without praying. You can make a fortune without praying. You can fix a marriage without praying. You can accomplish a lot without praying. And so that if the only reason to pray is to change things, but I can change them without praying, then what do I need to pray for? could be that our pragmatic approach to prayer has just eliminated the need for prayer altogether. Maybe we don't pray because we feel unheard. You ever felt that way? Some of you do not feel that way. You feel like God does not have time for you and God does not want to hear from you. Think, I've been praying for the same prodigal child for 15 years and God still hasn't answered. Clearly, he doesn't care. Clearly, he doesn't know. Clearly, he's not going to fix this even though I've prayed so long and so hard and sincerely about it. Sometimes we feel like, and maybe you feel like that, God just doesn't have time to deal with your problems. There may be a lot of reasons that we don't pray faithfully. I don't know what all of them are. I I don't know why I struggle to pray well. But I do know this. The Bible tells us that we should pray. I do know that the Bible tells me that I should come before the throne of grace with confidence. With boldness. That's what the Bible says. Come before the throne of grace with boldness. The Bible tells me to pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 17. Pray without ceasing. And I've heard it said before that that phrase without ceasing, that that's like trying to hold in a cough. You know how it is when you get a tickle in your throat and you've got to cough. You're not going to be able to hold it in forever. I had that happen to me a couple weeks ago. We were having chapel at school. And, you know, since it's a place for, for pastors and people in, in ministry training, they kind of want you to go to chapel. And so I was in chapel this particular Tuesday morning. And if you've never been in the chapel at Beeson, everything in there is covered with, covered with marble. Okay? And so it echoes just, just tremendously. And if you squeak your shoes on the floor, you can rupture somebody's eardrum on the other side of the room. All right? And so I got there just a little bit late after class, and the chapel was packed. And so I ended up sitting on the very back row in the balcony. Because I'm a back row Baptist if I'm not here, okay? So I'm sitting on the very back row in the balcony. And right behind me walks in my Old Testament professor. I'm talking about one of the greatest Bible scholars in America. Sits right beside me. And evidently, he's, he's still pretty worried about COVID because he has on like three masks and gloves. He looks like he's getting ready to take out somebody's wisdom teeth, all right? He's prepped for surgery. And right as the preacher started to preach, with this great Bible scholar sitting right beside me, I started getting a tickle in my throat. And I tried to hold it in, so I'm, you know how you do, tried to fight it, <clears throat> tried to clear my throat, <clears> throat> until finally... I just started coughing. I had to get up and leave. 
Because, you know, in this post-COVID world, you cough too much in public, they'll put you on a no-fly list, right? And so I didn't want to disrupt the service because I knew everybody could hear me. I knew that I was freaking everybody in there out and all this stuff. And Jesus says, that's the way you should be praying. You should be praying as if there is something inside of you that just has to come out. You can't keep it in, but it has to spring up to God. That's the point. And now he's going to give us a parable to emphasize that point. And there are two major characters in the parable. The first one is the unjust judge. We'll come back to him in a second. The second character is the widow. Now, this widow is clearly a tough old bird. She's got fire in her belly, and she's got steel in her backbone. She probably used to be the head of WMU somewhere. And here, the Bible tells us that she is a widow. And in Jesus' day, for widows, there was no social safety net. There were very limited financial resources to help take care of these ladies. And and in Jesus' day, typically a woman's livelihood was totally wrapped up in the life of her husband. And so when he's gone and when his earning power is gone, she has nothing. To add insult to injury, somebody has cheated this woman in some way. Jesus doesn't tell us what that is. He leaves it up to our imagination. Maybe somebody poisoned her dog. Maybe some multi-million dollar development company is going to come in and push her out of her house. We don't know what the problem is, but we do know that this woman has decided she's had enough and she wants her day in court. And so she goes to a judge. And the Bible tells us that this particular judge is an unjust judge. This judge is a man who does not fear God. He has no sense at all that there is a higher authority than him that he answers to. And he doesn't care about people. That's exactly who you want in civil service, isn't it? Doesn't care about God, don't particularly like people. And so this woman demands her day in court. And she comes to the court and she presents her case. And the judge basically says, lady, I don't care. He throws the case out. And that's it. But not for her, it's not. Because this woman says, I will get justice against my adversary. I will make sure that this wrong is righted. And so maybe a few evenings later, the judge is out with his wife at a nice restaurant. Kind of restaurant where you have to wear a coat. While they're sitting down over their cream brulee at dessert, this woman pops out from behind a curtain. Avenge me of my adversary. Fix this wrong that is righted. So finally the maitre d' has to haul her out of there. Then a few days later, he has to go pick up his dry cleaning. And while he's carrying his judicial robe out of the dry cleaner, this woman pops out from somewhere else in the strip mall. Give me what is mine. Avenge me of my adversary. He says, lady, you are crazy. Then a few days later, he's pushing his grocery cart through the vegetable aisle. And all of a sudden, a cart crashes into his cart. And he says, what? And it's this woman. Avenge me of my adversary. And then finally, look at how, look at how the man answers. He says, though I, I neither fear God nor respect man. Look, I don't care at all about this woman. But because she keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. What he says is this woman is killing me. The phrase beat me down is a phrase that means to hit under the eye. 
He said, I feel like this woman is just punching me in the face, coming to me over and over and over again. And the only way I know how to make it stop and the only way I know how to preserve my sanity is just to give her what she wants to shut her up. That's the parable. And Jesus uses this parable as a pattern for how we pray. So let's talk about the pattern. Widow demanding what she wants from an unjust judge, bothering him, just punching him in the face. Give me what I want or you will never, ever hear the end of it. Look at my face. You'll see me again. That's the way this woman's coming. And Jesus says, that's how we need to pray? As if God is up in heaven and he really doesn't care about us and he really doesn't want us. But if we keep coming and if we drive him crazy enough and we pray year after year after year, finally God will say, okay, if you'll shut up, I'll give you what you want. Jesus say, all right, now y'all go pray that way. Is that the point? Surely we're missing something in this passage of scripture. Verse six, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Here's why I think the two parables in Luke 18 about prayer are so amazing. In the next one, in the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, Jesus ties prayer to the doctrine of justification. We'll look at that in a couple of weeks. Here, Jesus connects prayer to the doctrine of election. Now, y'all, I'm tired. It's been a long day. My body knows that I missed an hour of sleep last night. Came to church this morning, preached this morning, and then I had about 500 grams of carbs for lunch. Noodles, pasta, I'm worn out. I know it's been a long day for all of us. I know you're tired. So we may as well just talk about one of the most controversial doctrines in the Bible. What do y'all think? The doctrine of election. Jesus puts it here. He puts this idea right in the text as he talks about praying. But let me just tell you tonight that when the Bible mentions the doctrine of election, when the Bible talks about this concept, it's never presented to divide people so that some people can prove how much smarter they are than other believers or so that denominations can split or so that people can get their feelings hurt in Facebook arguments. But the Bible always presents the doctrine of election as an encouragement to God's people. Why? Because God chose us. And so when I pray, I'm not praying as if I'm talking to a judge who doesn't care about me and who does not want me. I'm praying to a father who wanted me. A father who loves me. A father who invites me to come. That's Jesus' point. Pray like this woman because your circumstances are totally different from this woman. If this woman can have that kind of bulldog and tenacity when she's coming to a judge who hates her, how much more should you pray faithfully day and night because your father loves you? How much more should you take that prodigal child to the father because that father loves that baby more than you do? How much more should you lift up your broken heart to God because God cares about it more than you could possibly imagine? How much more should you take that injustice and that pain and that hurt to God because our God is near the brokenhearted and he cares for us when we're burdened and when we're overwhelmed? Jesus is saying you should pray because you are not talking to your judge. You are talking to your Savior. And then he says those who are chosen, those who realize this, they pray day and night. Then he asks his question. The end of verse number eight. 
Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And we know he will. It's not as if everybody's going to hell. But the question is supposed to drive home, will he find this kind of faith in us? That this is the kind of faith that is present in the hearts of God's people that cries out to him over and over and over again in prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is just the expression of faith. That's all it is. Faith that doesn't know when to quit. Faith that doesn't know when it stops or when to stop. Faith that doesn't have the sense to know that it may have overstepped some invisible boundary. Think about it this way. We all wish we prayed better and we all wish we prayed more. But folks, in the end, we're never going to pray the kind of prayers that God deserves, are we? It's not as if somehow we're ever going to pray enough and God says, you know, that was really impressive. Man, I am just shocked that you learned. You're not going to get to heaven and the Lord's going to say, this one right here, this one, she knew how to pray. There's not going to be, you know, a second floor to heaven for all the prayer warriors and the rest of us scrubs are going to be down in the basement. That's not the way this is going to work. It's not as if we're ever going to really graduate from, you know, the kindergarten class of prayer. But... Prayer really is a cry from a believing heart that knows we have a Father who is there and who answers and who will take care of us. And if we are just babies crying out for our Father, then we're not going to bother Him. And He doesn't expect us to be concerned about bothering Him. If you've ever had a newborn baby in your house, that baby did not care one bit at all if it bothered you. And even if it interrupted your sleep, you might have wished you could have slept better, but it didn't bother you, did it? It didn't bother you. What's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is that you're not bothering God when you pray. So cry. Cry out to Him. Day and night. Lift up your voice to the Lord and pray to Him. He will not delay long. (coughs) He says in verse 7 and (coughs) 8, excuse me, He says that that God will give justice speedily to the elect. I wish Jesus wouldn't have said that. Because it sure doesn't seem like God gets in a hurry, does he? It sure doesn't seem like he answers quickly. Well, not to us, no. God doesn't need to be in a hurry. He always answers right on time. And in his timetable, he always answers by giving us what we need, when we need it. And I really think that when we get to heaven, and when we look back over our lives, and we see all that he's done through our prayers, I really do think we are going to be thankful for all the things we asked for that God didn't give us. Garth Brooks was wrong. There are no unanswered prayers. There aren't any unanswered prayers. God may tell you no a lot, but he's not going to fail to answer. But we are going to, I think, realize, Lord, you really did give me what was best, even if you didn't give me what I wanted. And we're going to thank him. And when we get to heaven, we're also going to be shocked at how much God gave us that we never even thought to pray for. 
never dawned on us to ask for it. And God was just good. And we're going to be amazed. We're going to be amazed at how all of God's answers were just right. They were all right on time. And we're going to be amazed at how our lives, our families, our church were all different because God answered us and because we prayed. Because God will give what is right to his elect. Sometimes God doesn't answer the way we want because what we're praying for is so far beyond his will for us that he can't give it to us and still love us. The Bible talks about that, right? We have not because we ask not, or we have not because when we ask, we ask amiss that we consume it on our own lusts. Sometimes God doesn't answer for that reason. Sometimes God just wants us to wait. Sometimes when we pray, God seems distant because he wants us to pray. And he wants us to trust. And he wants us to grow us in faith. And what is prayer? If you put it all together in Luke 18, what is prayer? Prayer is the vocalization of faith. This parable is about prayer, but this parable concludes in verse 8. It's about faith. Faith prays. It can't help it. It can't help it. Trust in God cannot help but be transformed into asking God, seeking God, and talking to God. And maybe the real reason we don't pray is unbelief. Maybe that's the real reason. That's, that's the real issue in the heart. Is that maybe we just have a disordered faith. We don't have faith that God answers like this, or that He hears, or that He cares, or that He loves us, whatever. Maybe there's a disordered faith. Disjointed, disarticulated faith. Friends, our God is worthy of our trust. And if He's worthy of our trust, He hears our prayers. And so we'll pray to Him this evening. And you've got on your prayer meeting agenda, I hope, those verses I mentioned a minute ago, a minute ago in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. That we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And y'all, listen to me tonight. Listen to me. That's why prayer works. Prayer doesn't work because my prayers work. Prayer works because Jesus is there. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then, because we have a perfect high priest, let us then with confidence, with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we begin praying tonight, I want you to pray that God would give us the kind of prayer life Jesus wants us to have. Pray that he would do that in us. And then we're going to pray for our Easter services. Easter is typically the highest day of attendance in churches. Now, ironically, one of the lowest days of attendance in churches is the Sunday after Easter. Can't explain that to you, but it is what it is. But a lot of people will come to church on Easter because you're supposed to come to church on Easter, right? And it's a great day for people to hear and prayerfully respond to the gospel. So let's pray for those folks and for our church services. Let's pray together tonight. Father, Lord, my prayer for me and my prayer for our church body is that you would develop in us the kind of prayer life that Jesus wants us to have. Lord, you want us to pray with confidence. 
You want us to pray with boldness. You want us to pray with gratitude, with joy. You want us to pray with assurance that you are our Heavenly Father. You want us to pray, Lord, with knowledge that you have a kingdom that is coming. You want us to pray with a steadfast commitment to your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. You want us to pray with trust that you are going to provide for our daily needs. With a rest that you will pardon all of our sins. Lord, help us to pray the way Jesus wants us to pray. Help us to pray faithfully, continually. Help us not to lose heart. God, whatever the unbelief might be in us that keeps us from praying, Lord, I pray you would expose it. And I ask you to remove it. I ask you to change us. Help us to pray the way Jesus wants us to pray and taught us to pray. Help us to realize, God, in the end, our prayers are not effective on their own. It's not as if we ever pray well enough or sincerely enough or loud enough for you to give us what we need. But God, our prayers are effective because of your Son who intercedes for us, who invites us to come, who represents us. And Lord, we pray tonight in His name, asking you to hear us on His behalf, trusting God that you do what is right because you have a plan for us in Christ. And God, I pray you would help us to realize that all of our praying, is in Jesus, through Jesus, from Jesus and for Jesus. And God, I pray that we would be the kind of people who pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. And Lord, I want to pray with our church family tonight for our Easter services. Lord, it's going to be Easter before we know it. In just a few weeks, Lord, we'll be celebrating your resurrection. And God, there will be people here on Easter, I'm sure, that maybe we haven't seen since Christmas or haven't seen in a long, long time. God, I pray you'd bring them here. I pray you'd bring them. And, and Lord, I pray that even if they are just coming to, to check off a box, God, I pray that your word and your spirit would grab them while they are here. And Lord, I pray that exposure to the gospel and to the love of the people of God would transform their lives. Lord, you told us through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that when unbelievers come into the house of God, Lord, they ought to fall down and worship, realizing that God is among us. And Lord, I pray that that would happen on Easter. God, I pray that we would be so filled with your spirit, so excited about Jesus, so united in the gospel, so loving to sinners and outsiders. Lord, that when they come, they would realize that they are interacting with something they can't find anywhere else in this world. And God, I pray that they would be made uncomfortable in their sins. But God, I pray that they would find hope and peace in Jesus. And God, I pray that you would send guests week after week. And God, I pray that we would love them well. We would be kind to them. We would show them grace. We would get to know them. And God, we would use our church service as a means to share the gospel with a needy world. So God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for what you're going to do here on Easter. And I pray, God, it would encourage us as we see your work. God, I pray that you would work in such a way that you alone would get the glory for it. But I pray you would get the glory, Lord, so that we would see your work. We would praise you and magnify you for using us and being among us. Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name and amen.